Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Glad to have you with us today. Um, I think most of you certainly know, uh, if you didn't know it before hearing NPR News just a minute ago, that the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump gets underway uh, this afternoon. NPR will cover the proceedings live. And uh, with that in mind, I want to welcome the listeners who usually hear us, our show on WUGA out in Athens at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, uh, the management out there has been very gracious and has decided that you should be able to hear the show at 9 o'clock when we do it live, as most of you know. So welcome uh, to all of you. I'm glad that you will get to hear Political Rewind today, even as the impeachment trial uh, gets underway. Um, the, uh, the interesting thing, of course, about this trial, aside from the historic nature of Trump being the only president being impeached twice, is that once again, Georgia is in the spotlight. While the main charge in the one article of impeachment is that Trump incited the insurrection that took place at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, the uh, article also mentions, and we expect we will hear much more about the effort that Trump made to convince Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to overturn the results of the election here in Georgia. And as you heard in our headlines at the very top of the show, uh, the at the same time that all this is going on, the Secretary of State's office has announced it's begun an investigation as a response to a complaint filed by a professor at George Washington University about Trump and uh, 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 they will apparently look into whether coercion was involved, whether it was a violation of any laws. Uh, if, if, they, if their findings show that there is reason to pursue this, it's not the Secretary of State's office that would take the next step. It is most likely the Attorney General, Chris Carr's office, would be the one who would then decide what to do about whatever is found. All right, so there's that. There is a lot of news coming out of the state capitol during the legislative session. We're going to talk about all that with our panel this morning, which includes our Tuesday, my partner every Tuesday, Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Thank you for being here, Tamar. Tamar, I want to very quickly, you talked about it before the show went on the air, and all of us were very interested you filed a very long and comprehensive story on midwives in Georgia, which, by the way, we're going to post a link to so people can read it. But I think you thought you were going to be doing a lovely feature story about um, primarily women who uh, deliver uh, babies uh, outside of the standard medical system. That's not what it turned out to be, is it? <laughs> yeah, I was helping my colleague out for Black History Month. We, we do it big at the AJC and like to have a new story that goes up every day. So he said, why don't you write about the history of black midwives in the South? I said, great, lovely, heartwarming story, no trouble at all. And it 
turned into this <laughs> rabbit hole, especially as I looked into the, the Georgia legislature and the fight to license uh, some of these midwives who, who give or help deliver babies at home. And it's been a fight that's been going on for years and kind of untangling all of it and all the different groups involved was a real rabbit hole and it ran in Sunday's AJC. Yes, and uh, 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 Sam Burmis does told me uh, that he's just posted a link to it so people can read this really comprehensive piece on the work that these uh, uh, midwives do and the obstacles they run into. And our panelist, uh, State Representative Mary Margaret Oliver, Democrat from Decatur, uh, I'm sure this is an issue that is not unknown to you, Mary Margaret. The question is, is the legislature looking to do anything about um, licensing of midwives, or is that just something way on a back burner? In my long political career, I've followed this issue as it's evolved through our culture. Uh, when uh, kind of uh, the modern um, home birth uh, movement came along and they moved into being supervised by OBGYNs, they left out the traditional midwife program. So it's a very interesting part of our history. It's an interesting part of what women have chosen. And uh, the fight goes on as many, many, many scope of practice fights go on in the Capitol. What can a psychologist prescribe? What can a nurse practitioner prescribe? What can a midwife do? Those are the kind of fights we spend a lot of time on instead of expanding Medicaid. Um, if, thank you for that uh, brief um <clears throat> Uh, description of what's involved in this, uh, and we're not going to talk about it in, de in depth today, but I do think it's worth everybody's taking a look at, because uh, Tamar really did a comprehensive piece. Um, we're joined today by Dr. Andre Gillespie, Professor of Political Science and Director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory University. Um, Andre, how are things for you over on the Emory campus? Everything going well? I mean, it's busy. It's as good as one can expect, given, you know, the moment that we're in. So, but yeah, everything's going fine. Thanks. Um, no issues with COVID on campus? You're staying safe? Your students are able to stay safe? Um, yes. So, I mean, I'm actually really proud of how Emory has handled its response to COVID-19. I think that they've been very thoughtful. They have plans in place, you know, when people do uh, come into contact with the virus. There's a good quarantine plan um, in place. I'm, I'm not teaching on campus this semester like I was last semester. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that I think everybody was really proud about was that they can't trace any transmission to that classroom contact. So, um, you know, and they're hopefully, you know, our colleagues who are teaching in person this semester will be able to have the same record of success. Well, I'm glad to hear that things are going well on your campus. Uh, we're also joined today by Leo Smith. Leo, a Republican political consultant. Uh, Leo, of course, used to work with the state Republican Party as the minority outreach director, but has since moved on, <coughs> excuse me, and is president and founder of the Engaged Futures Group, which deals with policy issues. And Leo, which I think it's safe to say, is an organization that you're dedicated to using to sort of bring diverse people in our community together. Is that a fair description? That is a very fair description, Bill. It's great to see you all during this Black History Month where on Clubhouse, which is a new social audio um, app that I'm using, 
um, to do exactly that, to bring Republican voices and conservative voices together with progressive liberals from all over the world to have more interaction, get better understanding of each other. And I've erected a website called afterwevote.com in order to do that work. I, I don't know that the person I'm thinking of would want to be known for using Clubhouse, so I'll be a little careful about this, but I know someone who is on Clubhouse like almost every night and finds the discussions to be comp- really, really fascinating, Leo. Yeah, from Mark Andreessen to Elon Musk to uh, Skip Gates and Andrew Young, they're all on there having these sometimes curated salons and sometimes Wild Wild West discussions. <laughs> Uh, it's really fascinating. All right, let's get right to the topics today. Um, Mary, Mar- Mary Margaret, if you don't mind, let me start with you, uh, because you're the uh, lawyer on the panel today. Um, let's talk about this George Washington University professor who has filed a complaint and asked the Secretary of State's office to investigate what potential wrongdoing took place when Trump called Brad Raffensperger and said, among other things, just find me 11,000-plus votes so that I can be declared the winner of the election. Mary Margaret, the, the Secretary of State's office says they don't have a choice. They have to respond to this complaint. What are they going to investigate, do you think? As you know, um, Secretary of State Raffensperger has said he's had over 180 complaints uh, in a wide variety of ways that he's investigating, that he's obligated to investigate. He has investigators. This is a routine part of his election management service. Obviously, a complaint that the former President Trump uh, violated the law in participating in the election is not a usual complaint. And since Secretary Raffensperger is a witness, uh, a participant, and directly uh, in a position to give facts in relation to this investigation, I'm really curious how he's going to handle it. It seems to me that he is obligated to recuse himself in some way, and I'm very curious. I'm sure there's some smart lawyers helping him about setting up a procedure whereby he steps aside. I have not seen anything written about how he's going to do that. Um, But I suspect that he, if I were in his shoes, if I were advising him, I would say this is a routine part of your investigation, but you are too personally connected to the direct evidence in relation to this matter that you're going to have to find an alternative way for the investigation to happen. That's kind of educated guesswork. I'm not sure what you'll really do. Uh, Tamar, yeah, we don't have a lot of details about this yet, but Tamar, we do know, as I mentioned right as I introduced everybody, uh, if the Secretary of State finds reason to pursue this, uh, it won't be his office. It would most likely go to Chris Carr, the state's attorney general. My guess, Tamar, is that given the tumultuous chasms among state Republicans right now over the election, Chris Carr is not enthusiastically waiting for the, a, a complaint to come his way. And remember that Chris Carr himself was also getting pressure from the White House. Um, My colleague Greg Bluestein reported that right, I think it was just after the Raffensperger call or right around that time that the president, uh, when he came to Georgia to campaign for Kelly Loeffler and and David Perdue ahead of the runoff, was was also reportedly um, pressuring him as well. So it it seems that it's going to be hard to find... um, 
officials who haven't been um, kind of a witness to, to all of this. So that adds to the challenge for these offices, especially as so many of these people gear up for re-election, including Brad Raffensperger and, and Brian Kemp. Yeah, a little bit later in the show, I want to talk about a story that Greg Bluestein, your colleague, filed earlier this morning about the ongoing rupture among Republicans around the election. And we'll get to that in a little while. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, Andre and, and then Leo, please weigh in. Um, you know, with the impeachment trial starting today, with this uh, an investigation of Trump's uh, phone call to Raffensperger, uh, Donald Trump remains... A, a, a he we can't put him behind us, Andre. He continues to be a major force in the discourse, our political discourse, every day. Yes, um, you know there are ways that he has receded, and so you know I have to admit, I mean, I've been somewhat amazed about how little we've talked about President Trump, former President Trump, since uh, his Twitter account was taken away from us. So we don't get that direct line, and so. You know, we have seen kind of a shift in terms of the discussion and the focus, and I think that that's rightly so. On the other hand, uh, the Trump presidency exposed rifts created and deepened fissures in American society uh, that can't be breached with just him not being president anymore. Um, and so it's like walking around and knowing that you have a tumor and saying, if I ignore it, I hope that it goes away. Like, this isn't going to go away until it actually gets dealt with. And so, yeah, while it's inconvenient, uh, for us to have to deal with this now while it's painful. And while this is certainly a distraction from the Biden administration, the only way to address it is to address it now, because if we kick the can down the road, the things that he has done and said and the ways that he has continued to, you know, affect politics are still going to be uh, relevant and are still going to be topics of discussion. So we can't move past, you know, the bad things that happened in the Trump administration until we actually address them head on. Leo, Politico reported this morning that Trump, who has chosen to uh, appear as if he's not terribly concerned about the impeachment trial, he's been out playing golf every day, is plotting, uh, and I don't think that's a ch too charged a word to use, that's essentially what Politico was saying, uh, his uh, return to the public uh, conversation looking to uh, get revenge on Republicans who have turned against him. But the Trump folks believe that this impeachment trial, in fact, will probably um, be beneficial to him because it will energize supporters <clears throat> who may have been sort of a little bit uh, anesthetized by the fact that he's not on Twitter these days. Right. I mean, Bill, this is certainly is an energizing factor, this impeachment. Once again, um, Trump's uh, you know, victimization is on the stage as much as this idea that Trump uh, incited an insurgency and an assault on our Capitol. Trump will more than likely, uh, by most accounts and even most Democrat accounts, uh, when they're secretly asked, um, emerge from this without being convicted. And yet he will say this is just another example of how much that derangement syndrome is is so fixated upon. You know, um, I think the AP polling I saw recently said that 67 percent uh, Republicans believe that Trump, you know, um, had an election stolen from him. That's he still is holding an audience with that set of beliefs. I mean, that, that level of disinformation that has happened has traction still now and probably will for a while. Time is on Trump's side. And he can just kind of enjoy his golf and watch the Democrats create a stage for him to campaign. 
Um, so, Tamar, let's talk. I, you know, there will be plenty of conversation about the national story about impeachment, but let's at least spend a couple minutes on it and uh, then talk about the Georgia aspects of it. Um, you know, Democrats continue to be somewhat divided on how to handle this trial. Do they do it quickly, put it behind them so they can address the, pres- the agenda that President Biden uh, wants to be able to get through Congress? Obviously, the big relief package being part of that, uh, an infrastructure bill that he is hoping to introduce. Uh, and so they're suggesting maybe some of them want no witnesses, some of them just want it over with because they already know that Republicans are not going to, enough of them aren't going to vote for a conviction. Uh, and, and on the other hand, there are those who are arguing that we need to really dig into this in depth with witnesses. I guess the question becomes if, in fact, we now know that there's no way 17 Republicans will support a conviction of Trump, what exactly do Democrats, what's their goal as the trial gets underway? Well, I think, you know, they are, of course, under pressure to. Um, aid President Biden and and help get his agenda through Congress. You mentioned the COVID bill and infrastructure package. They still have to keep confirming members of his cabinet. At the same time, they're under a ton of pressure from their supporters, members of their base to to prosecute this president and, and kind of lay down, you know, put their foot down and say what happened on January 6th is not acceptable and can never happen again. So they need to, to listen to members of their base because, you know, you don't want to get challenged from your, your left. And there's plenty of people who say this is so norm-busting what happened that, that you can't let this stand, even if it is a, a futile effort. Um, what will be interesting is how much we're going to hear, especially from Raphael Warnock in the coming days. He's obviously up for re-election in two years. He's got to, or not even two years, a year and a half. He has to turn around and, and do it again. So what yeah. do we hear from him? Uh, for John Ossoff, it won't be as pressing because he has, he has six more years. Um, and what else will be interesting is if, if there is a press to have witnesses um, would Democrats want to call Brad Raffensperger in as a witness? Um, and that's something we're going to be watching closely as well. Mary Margaret, how does this all impact Democrats at the state legislature? Well, I'm a member of the Democratic base, uh, certain one element yeah. of it. Uh, I accept that the his- historic nature of January 6th requires uh, a certain action. I would counsel, if I were asked, uh, that we do it quickly and efficiently and get it behind us. I do believe that the significant evidence about President Trump's uh, being delighted during the mob, about the specific ways he spoke to the mob and the specific ways he did not seek, uh, re- refuse to allow others to seek uh, law enforcement assistance, are very, very damning. In terms of Georgia being the center of this political drama, Georgia is the center of our political drama. And all of the direct players that we're discussing, Chris Carr and Secretary of State Raffensperger, Lieutenant Governor Duncan, and Governor Kemp, of course, who President has said is his number one project to get rid of Governor Kemp, we're very much a player in this political drama. You know, I think ultimately at the end of the day, sort of separation of powers is on trial here, which is why it's important for us to proceed with this. So, you know, the Constitution is is vague about lots of things, particularly, you know, um, Articles 2 and 3 when it talks about sort of the powers and the responsibilities of, of the executive and the judicial branch, because 
these were new institutions. And so they kind of made kind of these skeletal kind of outlines of what was going on, and we filled it in over the last 230 years. Um, and in particular with removal, right, it's sort of subject to a bit of interpretation in terms of what high crimes and misdemeanors are. Uh, and, you know, so over time when we looked at other impeachments, right, there are things that people probably won't get impeached for again. So no president is probably going to get impeached again for lying about an extramarital affair because it didn't work when it got to the Senate trial. This is more serious, right? So the allegation of inciting a riot, and because we all watched it on TV, I think there's actually pretty credible evidence that that is, in fact, what happened, and people are twisting themselves to try to say that that's not what happened or that there isn't a causal link between President Trump's speech and then what ended up happening at the U.S. Capitol, right? If this isn't impeachable, if this doesn't warrant removal from office, nothing does, which means that you have now taken a power away from the legislative branch to hold the executive branch in check. And so people are worried about the imperial presidency, right? Like, this is what you should be worried about. I'm less worried about, like, executive power, I mean, you know, making executive orders than I am about being able to get away with starting a riot. Uh, Leo, apparently Americans tend to agree with what uh, Andra is saying. ABC News and Ipsos just released a poll on Sunday which showed uh, that 56% of Americans say that Trump should be convicted and barred from holding office again. That's up considerably. That's up like seven points from just a month ago. And 15% of Republicans uh, said that they would like to see that outcome um weigh in on this well that that those percentages of people believe that trump should be convicted begs the question as to whether or not the impeachment hearing is even the conviction hearing in the for in the senate even makes sense because if you believe that he should be convicted perhaps then you should be focusing on giuliani's words combined with trump's whether or not there was collusion um, in between the all the camps working including you know uh Franchelli, the public's heir bringing people there that kind of stuff should be used as a, 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 an attorney general's an fbi case against trump um i think this whole senate hearing thing if you truly are working on conviction when you know it's not going to happen it seems like it's a distraction to that that argument. Mary Margaret, I turn to you again as the lawyer in the group today. We know that in this, on this first day, uh, the Democrats and Republicans in the Senate have agreed that this first day will consist of arguments about the constitutionality of whether a president or, or for that matter, any elected official uh, who is out of office can, in fact, uh, face an impeachment trial. And one of the things that's interesting about this is the uh, uh, lawyer who's going to argue apparently today against this being constitutional is David Schoen, who's based here in Atlanta, who has a long history of doing civil rights law. He says he's never been a Trump supporter uh, before. But what's interesting is the brief that he and, uh, and uh, his partner, uh, who will also try this case, the brief they file is really incendiary. I mean, it includes language about Trump derangement syndrome. It's not what you'd expect to see, Mary Margaret, in a typical argument uh, filed in, in a court of law. Of course, that's not what this is. Let's start with the constitutionality issue. I believe that that has been resolved by courts in the past. I don't think there's any serious precedent that would say that someone who's not in office cannot be uh, impeach. So they're going to get beyond that and then go into how are they, how is this trial going to be designed? 
it's probably true that President Trump has found a very competent lawyer, uh, someone who is not taking direction, someone who um, <laughs> kicking the dog, someone who um, yeah. <laughs> is uh, someone who is a respected uh, practitioner, someone who will be of assistance in framing this in a legally correct way. Um, I think the shorter the better and the more succinct and the more focused uh, the argument and the evidence will be. But it is, it is a unique time in history and must be addressed, and I'm glad there's some competent lawyers involved. Um, Mary Margaret, I'm hearing that your dog does not necessarily agree at all with your point of view on, on this. Uh, uh, tomorrow, we'll, we'll try to carry on. Um, tomorrow... You know, this the question of Trump's ubiquity in Republican politics certainly extends to politics in Georgia right now. Uh, this past uh, week, uh, Representative Congressman Barry Loudermilk was up in Bartow County. He talked about the fallout to a crowd on the Janu- of the January 6th riots. He basically said that uh, really the plan was just to come and stand around the Capitol, as groups do all the time. Mostly, he says, they were far-left groups, just to so- show their strength and support uh, that, that Trump has still has in uh, the nation. And, and then he went on to say that he's convinced to this day that Donald Trump won the election. I mean, th- th- this just shows you these conspiracy theories. Can't, they, they have a firm hold on many Republicans. Yeah, it's not just Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, you know, Barry Loudermilk was an early member of the House Freedom Caucus, but ended up leaving the group uh, a year or two into his tenure. Um, I always kind of saw him inching more toward the the conservative mainstream. So it's interesting to see just how much it's taken his hold. He's, of course, been a firm supporter of Donald Trump over the last four years. But I was surprised to to kind of see um, kind of the full extent of those comments talking about how he saw Antifa elements as being a part of this January 6th mob. He was angry that the AJC and, you know, our editorial board named him for, um, you know, to voting to overturn the Electoral College results while, while also not doing the same back in uh, 2005 when um, John Kerry lost, uh, when John Lewis uh, ended up challenging those results. So it, it does go to, go to show how deep a lot of this is, and how hard it's going to be for Republicans in the state to, to unify going forward um, in the years ahead. It's really unfortunate that there are still remaining Republicans in Georgia, in addition to Marjorie Taylor Greene, who are removing themselves from any meaningful role of leadership in the Republican um, caucus. For I'm, I'm really kind of surprised uh, I don't think Barry Loudermilk was 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 in line to be a leader in the Republican uh, caucus in Washington, but I, it seems so clear to me that he's removing himself from um, opportunity to really serve in, in a future role. When I look at the new Democrats that are elected, uh, Senator Warnock and Ossoff and Nakima and Carolyn Bordeaux and Lucy McBath, I see participants in the Democratic leadership opportunities. Uh, Nakima and Carolyn Bordeaux on the House side are particularly poised to be, because they're from an important state, we're a very important state, because they tend to be probably more centrist, 
Carolyn Bordeaux's Join the Problem Solvers Caucus. I just see real opportunities for our newly elected Congress women uh, and U.S. senators to become mainstream leaders in the Democratic Party in a variety of different ways with a variety of different personalities. Barry Loudermilk, um, Taylor Green, all of them are just taking themselves out of any meaningful role. Um, I've got to get to a break, but before I do, Andrew, because I want to put the impeachment behind us, but I do want to get a comment from you, if I may. Um, it strikes me when you read Loudermilk's statement that this is another reason that Democrats feel so, and some Republicans uh, feel so strongly that this impeachment trial has to go forward. Efforts to sanitize what happened in some ways on January 6th, to minimize this insurrection against the United States Congress— uh, if we allow that to happen, can understand that Democrats are insistent that that the American people should not be able to forget what a startling event that was. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a normative side of this that this has to kind of go on record, and you and they, and Democrats want to put people on record so that like when history eventually judges this, we can kind of see who was right and who was wrong ultimately, and and what was going on here. There's also a political strategy here. So even though you know Democrats might not be able to unseat a Marjorie Taylor Greene or Barry Loud enough because their districts will likely you know continue to be safe districts, and so it's really up to the Republican voters in those districts to decide whether or not they want to stay. But as a national strategy, one, they created a boogeyman in Marjorie Taylor Greene, and they're going to use that in the same way that Republicans use AOC against Democrats. But also, they're going to put people on record to say, this is the type of anti-democratic behavior that your member was actually supporting here. Here was the lie that they were trafficking in. Is this actually leadership? And I think that there are these bigger questions for leadership. I think you know, I think the jury is out about what Congresswoman Green actually believes. But for people who, you know, look like they were mainstream conservatives, I think there's a question of how much pandering is going on here. And if you're doing this level of pandering and you are and, and you lack the courage to be able to tell your constituents, kind of a la John McCain telling, you know, telling that, 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 that woman at that rally in 2008 that no, Barack Obama isn't a Muslim, that, yeah, I understand that you're upset and you have every right to be upset that you lost. But it's time to move on and it's time to accept the election results because they were valid. That's the thing that I think I'm mourning here is that people who otherwise would be courageous, who otherwise testify that this is what they believe in, they've behaved in you know, the exact opposite way. And that's been really unfortunate to see. Leo, I want to give you, know, you a quick chance, but I'm late for a break. But you go ahead. I'll be really quick with this. You know, in this political climate where hyper-local electioneering takes place, um, John McCain, uh, bless his heart, you know, bless his soul, probably would have lost in this in environment with his form of leadership. What these people are thinking about, Barry Loudermilk and Marjorie Taylor Greene, is just getting reelected. The 14th and the 11th, um, a large number of those voters believe that the election was fraudulent. Now, I can say absolutely not. It was not. But they believe it, and so therefore Loudermilk is appealing to them. Yeah, but a leader says right. uh, people believe a lie like that. Like you, like leadership says, no, you can't. Like I understand, but like I can't let you go there like that because that's not. Are, are politics you. are politicians even leaders anymore? Is a big question. We need to have that discussion. All right, uh, Leo, Andra, thank you very much for that exchange. Uh, let's do this. Let's get a break out of the way. Let's turn to issues 
uh, under the Gold Dome as the legislature continues its session. You're listening to Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Uh, During the break, State Representative Mary Margaret Oliver had a stern talking to with her dogs who have now promised they do not want to interrupt this important conversation. Again, thank you for that, uh, Mary Margaret. Mary Margaret joins us on the show today, as uh, does Dr. Andre Gillespie from Emory University, uh, Leo Smith, uh, former Republican operative, still a Republican consultant, but somebody who has made it clear he's not quite sure where he stands with the Republican Party these days. And my Tuesday partner on Political Rewind, uh, Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter at the AJC. Uh, Tamar, um, it's it, it, there are. It, I think it fits right into what we've been talking about. Really, uh, even as the election is further and further in the rearview mirror. The legislature continues to press for laws that will curtail, in many ways, mail-in voting. And your colleague, uh, Greg Bluestein, I mentioned earlier, he filed a story early this morning. We already know uh, there are some efforts to require not just one, but maybe two photo IDs to uh, uh, cast a mail-in uh, ballot. We know there are some efforts uh, to end at will no excuse mail-in balloting. But here's one that Bluestein reports on that I personally had not heard before, uh, although it's probably been out there. The, the state Republican Party put together a task force led by their chairman, uh, David Schaefer, and it included, they, their report had a lengthy list of recommendations to limit uh, voting. One of them was they want the state to get rid of the Dominion voting software, which was approved by the legislature in 2019, part of a $107 million overhaul of the state's voting infrastructure. And I can think of no reason why they might do this or want to do this other than, again, the conspiracy theories about Dominion software and Smartmatic software somehow being used to throw the election to Joe Biden. Tamar? Yeah. (laughs) And this is something we heard from Donald Trump and a lot of his allies in in the weeks following um, the election. We just saw Dominion suing, I believe it was Fox News and a lot of others for, um, not for libel, for slander, uh, for for talking, you know, about, um, you know, perceived faults in, in these machines when, when they say none exist. And it's it's pretty remarkable considering the, the fact that a year or two ago, these were Republican officials who were champion, championing this Dominion software. It was Republican officials who put this into place, um, you know, fighting against uh, paper ballot advocates and, and many Democrats who were pushing for that as well. So it goes to show how much all this can change after election. And, and just also worth noting, we've talked about this a ton in the past, but uh, you know, in the past in, in Georgia, it was a lot of Republican voters who were taking advantage of absentee uh, voting. And, um, you know, now that there's been an election where Democrats were able to capture a lot of important seats, uh, you know, the tides are turning. 
So, uh, uh, Leo, uh, Andre, and Mary Margaret, I want to get you all in on this conversation. Let me add one element to this story. Um, This list of recommendations, which we'll talk about in more depth tomorrow when Greg Bluestein is with us, but when the secretary, I'm sorry, when the lieutenant governor's office looked at this, uh, one of Jeff Duncan's chief operatives uh, said this about David Schaefer, quote, the guy who managed, talking about Schaefer, to squander the presidential election and two U.S. Senate seats in a matter of two months' time has now issued a laundry list of election reforms he'd like enacted without ever once consulting with the Republican governor, Republican lieutenant governor, or Republican speaker. That's a quote from John Porter, who then says, at some point, Georgia Republican voters are going to get tired of Schaefer's loser's limp. I don't think it can get much more pointed than that, and it really tells us, Leo, Republicans in this state are at each other's throats. No, there, there's no doubt, and, and I would say that there are many Republicans, including the Secretary of State of Georgia, who believe that the, the Dominion software and the Dominion upgrade of machines have done immense uh, improvements to our election system here and created more trust and integrity in our system as well. So not all Republicans agree, agree with this CYA modality that uh, puts me at odds with my party's leadership and David Schaefer. It's shameful, his leadership. Uh, What is the metric for winning as a Republican? Uh, I think we should consider winning as one of the qualifications for continuing in that role. And we should also consider integrity a big qualification. And David is, is embarrassing us. I'm, I'm pretty fascinated as an outsider watching this. Um, I can't believe that David Schaefer will be reelected as party chair, but, but I'm just an observer here. What I'm focused on more particularly is the Committee on Voter Quote-Unquote Integrity, chaired by Barry Fleming. Um, Barry Fleming usually has a plan, and I don't know what the plan is yet. Um, what I keep saying or observing and believe to be true is that voters like the privileges they've been given. They like the mechanics. They love the drop boxes. They like filling out a paper ballot at home and dropping it in a box. When you take rights away from people, things they like, things they approve, things about what, that have worked, there's going to be a pushback. And I can't, I, I perceive that the Republicans in the General Assembly are watching that day by day, hour by hour, perhaps. What is the evidence of voter pushback? In my district, um, I do these survey questions, not at all scientific, but 90% of them said, don't mess with absentee ballots, don't mess with the drop boxes. I'm posing these questions and it's consistently true that my voters and other voters across Georgia like how the system worked in a time of emergency and are going to want to keep those options and those privileges. What I call the Kinko's provision, having to go to a Kinko's to make a copy of a your driver's license is just going to irritate voters. Yeah, you know, I think the thing that is very ironic about this is not just what um, Tamar mentioned, that in previous studies before 2020, there was evidence that Republicans were slightly more likely to vote by mail than Democrats were. And that's a function of age, um, you know, more so than anything else. So Republican voters tend to be older and they're going to want the convenience of being able to vote absentee, especially when they have health challenges. 
Um, but, you know, I understand the sort of strategic kind of quandary that they're in. Because, you know, the lesson of 2020 was that the Republican strategy of trying to push everybody to vote in person, whether it was early or on Election Day, proved to be faulty because it couldn't match the Democrats banking up the score, right? So the response to that should be, okay, perhaps it was a dumb strategy to to discourage people from voting by mail. Perhaps we should get in on that game next time, right? Like, that's what you should do. But in order to do that, you would have to admit that Donald Trump's strategy was wrong, and nobody wants to admit that the emperor had no clothes on in this particular situation. So, right, what would be best in this situation, instead of trying to change the rules because you don't like what happened but from one election, is to go back and then go back and change the strategy and make sure that you tell people, hey, yeah, everything we told you about absentee voting and being fraudulent was a lie. Next time, we're going to make sure that you cast your absentee ballot so that that Republicans bank as many votes as Democrats do. You know, as a traditional Republican, it, 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 it strikes me as just we, we've lost our compass a little bit. You know, I even think uh, House Bill 228, which I'm sure Bluestein and you all will be talking about tomorrow, which is the uh, certain driver's license and identification cards shall not you know, be proper identification for presentation as to a poll worker. You know, those kinds of things would, you know, that's some, there's some reasonable argument to be made about that. I think a lot of Republicans, even some Democrats, would agree that perhaps that should be a consideration about tightening up our voter ID things. There are so many things that David Schaefer and Republicans could be rallying around and messaging around that actually might be really good argument. Another issue I'm concerned about as we celebrate Black History Month. You know, we've gone backwards as a party where I am now being asked to put on a Black History Month event for the Georgia GOP on the 15th. We have not one state committeeman who is a black American in the state of Georgia. That's embarrassing. Tomorrow. It's also it's also worth noting here kind of as an undercurrent to all of this are some of the personal relationships between a lot of these figures in the Republican Party. And it's worth noting the huge rivalry between David Schaefer and Lieutenant Governor uh, Jeff Duncan. Uh, Schaefer and Duncan, of course, ran against each other in 2018. They they landed in a really nasty primary runoff. And Jeff Duncan won an upset win. You know, everyone thought state senator, or not everyone, but but it looked like, like David Schaefer, who at the time was serving in the state Senate, had the inside track. So there, there's that kind of relationship there that's worth noting. And, and Duncan's reputation has been dinged a bit because he's been defending Brad Raffensperger on the national stage in interviews on, on cable news. And so I think a lot of people sense an opening that they can attack people like um, like Jeff Duncan, like Brad Raffensperger, especially as, as uh, former President Trump is going after those people already. Uh, you know, David Schaefer represents now, you know, a, a big constituency in that party, the, the grassroots activists who are more likely to be in line with, with Trump than they are with Raffensperger, with Jeff Duncan. And, and so there's an opening there, too. Um, on Monday's show, I quoted some figures that have been compiled by the Brennan Center for Justice, which has been monitoring state legislatures across the country to see what they're doing about their election laws. Uh, they have since updated figures that we reported on Monday. Uh, and I think it's worth mentioning, uh, Mary Margaret, that Georgia is far from alone. The Brennan Center says that well over four times now, the number of bills to restrict voting access uh, have come forward this year as opposed to last year. 33 states have introduced, pre-filed, or carried over 165 restrictive 
bills as compared to 35 bills in 15 states a year ago. But here's something else, Mary Margaret, that speaks to, I think, what what Leo would talk about in terms of looking at how we handle voting in the legislature. Um, They point out that 37 states have introduced bills, 540 of them, to expand voting access, not to restrict it, Mary Margaret. It's a lot of messaging going on around voting. There's a lot of excitement, obviously, among my Democrat friends about expanding voting because we're doing incredibly well. We had a great year in 2020. Um, the opportunity that the Republicans are blowing right now to create credibility with their voters is just fascinating to me. You cannot continue on a track of saying that there's fraud. You cannot make that argument. So Barry Fleming is switching to, well, we need voter confidence. I think the voters, most of the voters of Georgia, uh, do have confidence and felt like that the November recovery uh, of a competently managed election uh, was trustworthy. What pushback are the voters going to show if the Republicans continue to try to take away things they like, like absentee voting and drop boxes. And I, and I think your Democratic colleagues uh, all believe that by 2022, the voters will uh, uh, rebel against uh, uh, restrictions on voting. We'll see how that unfolds in the months ahead. Got to get to our final break of the show. Back with more in just a minute. <laughs> Uh, I have about five or six items from the legislature that I wish we had time to get to. We don't. One of them is this strange request that uh, Representative Emery Dunahoo, a, a Republican from up in North Georgia, uh, he's asked state schools and universities if they would let him know whether their teachers are uh, talking about white people being privileged and oppressive. I don't know if that's going anywhere. We're not going to talk about it today, but it is I think, worthy of a conversation. I'd rather, Mary Margaret, uh, because this has big implications, talk just for the next couple minutes about the tax credit uh, uh, task force that the state Senate is now suggesting needs to be established to look to make sure that the many tax credits that are being given to uh, industries, including the film and television industry, really are paying off the way they should. Good idea? Very good idea. That effort was led by Jay Powell before his untimely death. He had a strong opportunity. He was following through with a strong argument that we have an obligation to evaluate what we're doing. That's one of the biggest mistakes we make is we don't look back and say we did X to accomplish Y, and let's figure out whether that was true. Uh, Jay Powell had the support and the leadership position in the House to make that argument. I'm for it. Um, I think that we need to have a good evaluation of the tax credits we're giving away. Uh, I've spent an hour yesterday in front of the uh, Government Affairs Committee talking about tax abatement procedures and the secrecy of all of that on the local level. Uh, This is a very timely discussion locally and statewide, and I uh, hope the Senate has a serious effort. I want to join that effort in every way I can. All right, we'll watch how that unfolds. Uh, Andre Gillespie, we have, it's important, given that you're on the panel today, to ask you about this 
question that a state legislator is asking about whether people are teaching white privilege and oppression. We know that Donald Trump in his final months in office issued an order ending diversity training in federal agencies. He formed a task force which created the 1776 report, which is a complete distortion of the American history in terms of African-Americans. Uh, Biden has put those aside, gotten rid of them. But now you've got to what, what do you make of somebody asking that schools uh, uh, talk about this issue? Well, I mean, I think, you know, uh, I think this legislature is putting himself sort of, you know, on the side of, of, of Donald Trump and Tom Cotton and, and, and those who wish to challenge the idea that American history has usually been presented in a one-sided fashion and doesn't include the stories of and, and the experiences of people who have been marginalized and sometimes hurt by the system. Um, the notion of talking about white privilege and, you know, then getting one's ankles up for it is a prime example of, of, of what sociologists call white fragility. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and this is what people are countering, the idea that some people have to reckon with the fact that certain people have been more equal than others in the society and have been subjected to more privileges than others, usually at the expense of the more marginalized people, is something that's worth discussing. It's not unpatriotic. It's not anti-American to do this. People are just trying to tell the truth and put things into context. And our children can handle it, and we can handle hearing those hard truths. Uh, you asked us to look at an article at the, on the Wall Street Post that, you know, basically tried to kind of defend the 1776 project. And aside from the fact that it has no historians on it, which, you know, is like the biggest or most egregious error in and of itself, right? It's just this idea that, like, you, we're supposed to be uncritical about American history and forget that bad stuff happened, right? Some of us can't forget it because it's inscribed into our family histories, but, um, it's also just not healthy for us to like pretend that stuff didn't happen when it did or to whitewash things. Um, and so, you know, I would encourage uh, this legislator to, you know, to rethink the opinion because it looks like it's kind of intimidation um, on one level and to just be willing to sort of, you know, embrace complexity and nuance. Leo, this you is know, the sort of thing that drove you away from the party. Well, I mean, it is, but also what, keeps me involved in politics and civic education and, and, and my push for, you know, classical education and civic education being uh, interwoven into it is that we need to get back to facts. And, and when we talk about privilege, we're really talking about the lack of privilege to create an education that is fact-based. And that's what we need in the South. Randy Mims with his Arc de Triomphe looking uh, thing in the middle of Atlantic Station has created somewhat of a Southern history museum out of that. We need to put true history in front of white people so they can learn their real self-esteem. You know, there was um, I appreciate. Thing... Sorry, Go ahead, you know, real one quick. more thing that the uh, uh, you know the Wall Street Journal tried to say was that this wasn't what the founders intended when they were making decisions, and it's important for us to know what they were thinking in time. But we also need to step back and put it in a brighter context and say, look, here are what the consequences of that were. Um, you know, I think about, uh, you know, uh, Thomas Jefferson's daughter who, like, tried to put the kibosh on the idea that he had had an affair with Sally Hemings um, or that he slept with her because I don't want to try to say that this was romantic. And it's either she was willfully ignorant or she was straight up lying. So if I'm going to take her in time and place, uh, right, you know, I'm, I'm just supposed to take that at fact when we know based on DNA evidence that that's not true today. Like, this is, this is the, the lunacy of that argument. Uh, this is one of the reasons that as the weeks go by, we are going to continue, as we did last week, to feature shows that focus on racial justice 
and on uh, the history of uh, African Americans and white people in this country and what we need to do to reconcile the tremendous uh, historical problems uh, that our country has faced over the over the centuries. Um, we're completely out of time for today. Tamar Hallerman, Dr. Andre Gillespie, Leo Smith, Representative Mary Margaret Oliver, a real pleasure to have you with us uh, on the show today. We're back again, of course, uh, tomorrow, where we're going to continue talking about issues in state politics and take a look at the first uh, uh, reports out of Washington as we watch the impeachment trial unfold. Um, that's it for us. See you tomorrow. I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. Wear a mask. See you tomorrow.